and let's pray together as we come to this extraordinary passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, we, as I look out on these people here today, many among us are experiencing great burdens, and we pray that you would prove to be a faithful and strong refuge and strength to each one of us. We know that you are faithful, and we pray that you would encourage us by your word and by your people in the midst of hardship. And as we turn now to your word, we pray that you would use the incredible glory of these commands uh, so that we might be a showcase of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives uh, in the way that we love one another. We pray that you would do an extraordinary work of your spirit to um, help our minds and our hearts to be transformed uh, according to your word so that we will live out this countercultural, otherworldly way of love. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, just about um, Black Friday, I, I like to stroll through Best Buy and see all of the amazing home theater equipment. Some of you despise me for loving home theater equipment, but that's okay. Uh, you know, now for $500, you can get a 75-inch 4K flat-screen TV in front of which you can waste away your entire life. 75 inches with pictures that can look more real than reality, especially if it's an animated Pixar movie. It, it's, it's, it looks more real than reality. It's, it's incredible. And lifelike surround sound that makes you feel like you are right in the middle of the action. And because of this new HD technology, there are some unusual new products on the market, such as the HD fish tank channel. You can watch fish on your television. You never have to feed them. You don't have to deal with that strange fish tank smell. You can just watch someone else's fish. Or my personal favorite, the 4K fireplace. It's a crisp, high-definition video of a fireplace on your giant HD television, and it looks like a beautiful fireplace. It looks like you're gathered around the hearth at the Bryan household. And through the digital surround sound, it crackles just like a real fire. And the glow of the blaze soothes the mind. But when you curl up in front of it, there's something missing. There is no heat. There is no warmth. All you have is the show of heat but it's not genuine. 
the HD fireplace channel falls short of reality. But did you know that there is a kind of Christianity like that too? 4K Christianity, we might call it. HD Christianity channel. It's so close to the real thing, it has many demonstrations of the real thing, but there is no authentic fire, no heat. That's why Paul starts out our text the way he does in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Let your love be real, authentic, genuine. This is Paul talking about the transformed life, the transformed Christian life that's not conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, this life of Godward worship that every Christian is called to. And verse 9 gives us a, a summary command, let love be genuine, and all of the commands that follow seem to be flowing out of this one. Literally it reads, let love be without hypocrisy. Not a fake love, not a false love, not a 4K simulation of love, but a real, authentic love. And the rest of our passage gives us an unfolding of what this genuine love should look like. But before we look at these marks of genuine love, I want to make sure we are seeing them in the right context. This section is a list of commands. And whenever we come across a list of commands like this, we run the risk of two dangers, pride and despair. We can hear these commands and proudly think, hey, I'm doing pretty well. I am crushing it. I'm killing it. I, I have this genuine love. And that's pride. Or we may hear these incredible commands, this incredible way of life, and feel worthless and defeated, thinking, I fall so far short, I am a failure, I can't do anything right, there is no hope for me. Despair. But both of these reactions, pride and despair, miss the point. Pride and despair both drive us farther away from God. But these commands are not meant to drive us away from God. Remember the whole context of Romans. Paul is outlining for us in these last chapters what the response to God's mercy in Christ looks like. He has spent 11 chapters building the foundation, laying out the good news of God's mercy to us in Christ. Here are some of the highlights. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So these commands that we come to this morning are not a law book of rules for earning God's favor, 
for earning righteousness in God's sight. We only find favor in God's sight by his free gift given to us by faith in Christ. So these commands, this list of commands, are a glad invitation for God's beloved children who are already made righteous in Christ. So as we hear these instructions, let's not despair and let's not boast. Let's repent where we fall short and draw near by the blood of Christ and renew our commitment to grow in genuine love. So what does this genuine love, this love without hypocrisy, look like? The first mark of genuine love is surprising. It's the moral choices that we make. We see this in verse 9b. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Do you have a genuine love for God? If you do, then you will have an increasing dislike for what is evil and an increasing love for what is good. This word abhor is a strong word. It means extreme hatred, a vehement dislike for something. Uh, Growing up, my family had cats And I was a troubled youth, and uh, I wasn't really that troubled, but I was deranged. (laughs) And um, those cats hated to get sprayed with water. They would shriek in terror and scurry away, which made me want to spray them all the more. Cat, these cats had an extreme hatred and abhorrence, a vehement dislike. And that is the attitude that we should have when it comes to evil. A person who has a genuine love for God is called to be disgusted by evil and has a growing disgust and abhorrence for what is evil in God's sight. And the opposite is also true. We are called to hold fast, the opposite, to cling to what is good. To grab hold and to hold tightly to what is good. Like the way a child clings to its parent in the midst of danger. Hold fast to what is good. Our love for God is expressed in our moral appetites. What is the direction of your moral appetites? Do your moral appetites reveal a genuine and growing love for God or quite the opposite? Is God speaking to you about a specific evil in your life that you need to abhor? Is he putting his finger on something that you need to repent of and get away from? Listen to him. If he is convicting you of sin, of what is evil, listen to him and get rid of that evil thing and hold fast to what is good. Because our love for God is demonstrated by our moral choices and by our moral appetites, what we love and what we hate. 
Secondly, genuine love for God always spills over into love for people. In fact, love for other people is not a separate thing from love for God. There's a distinction, but not a separation between the two. Love for other people is an overflow, an expression of our love for God. Love for other people is a means of loving God. After all, when we love God, we begin to love what God loves. And God loves people. Another reason that God produces uh, love for God produces love for people is that human beings bear the image of God. See that person next to you? Whatever they may look like, that person is an image bearer of the living God. And because people carry God's image upon them, when we love people, we are actually loving God whom they represent because we are loving his image which is upon them. And this image of God gives every person inherent worth and dignity. So a genuine love for God will always produce a genuine love for people. And within the body of Christ, within the family, uh, the Christian family, we are called to love one another. Look again at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How do you feel about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a deep affection and love for them? Do you have a sense of family commitment to God's people? It's popular today uh, for people to consider themselves to be in a good relationship with Christ, but to care very little for his church. It's trendy to embrace spirituality, but to reject organized religion. Yeah, I, I love God, I love Jesus, but church, forget about it. But in reality, what is organized religion? When it comes to Christianity, at least in part, it is the body of Christ gathered together. That is our God-ordained, organized religion, the church, which Jesus Christ himself has established. And Christ calls every believer to be a part of that church and to live in the community of faith and he commands us to love one another with brotherly affection within the body of Christ. John Wesley was right when he said, the Bible knows nothing of a solitary Christian. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary Christian. We are meant to be in the community of faith and to love one another with brotherly affection. So true spirituality, true genuine love for God will produce a genuine committed love for one another within the body of Christ. So how genuine is your love 
for your fellow believers? Are you working hard at showing honor to your fellow believers? Do you even care about your fellow believers? Or are you isolating yourself from the body and flying solo? Genuine love for God will always produce an active love for the people of God. The third mark of genuine love that Paul gives us in this text is fervency of spirit, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, it's popular in our culture today to be cool, to be detached, to be unaffected, to care for nothing. Blah. Not to get too excited about anything in particular. But God doesn't want us to be cool. He doesn't want us to be neutral and unconcerned and unaffected by things. God calls us here to be full of zeal, to be passionate. Fervency in spirit in in our service to God. What about you? What about me? Are you a raging furnace of passion for the Lord? Are you full of fervency for his service? Or are you a spiritual sloth with no hint of passion or excitement or commitment? Now I confess, my own personality and my culture are challenged here. I read those words. um, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. And I'm challenged by that. You see, I tend to want to avoid excitement because I've seen a lot of false excitement. But the solution for false excitement is not no excitement. It is genuine excitement. Fervency of spirit. To be active in serving the Lord with passion and zeal. God is glorious. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the way of true righteousness, both in his death and resurrection for our sins and in his example, his way of life. We have something in Jesus to be genuinely excited about. And he is worth serving with zeal. Do not be slothful, but serve the Lord with zeal. And verse 12 gives us some idea of what that kind of fervency of spirit looks like. It looks like rejoicing in hope. It looks like being patient in the midst of tribulation. It means being constant in prayer. I don't know, if I I look at verse 12, I have room to grow in all those areas. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in the midst of tribulation, being constant in prayer. Lord, let, let us have a zeal that matches how worthy 
you are. Help us to have a passion to serve you that is appropriate to your greatness. Lord, do a work in us. Shake us from our slumber. Fill us with fervency of spirit in serving you. That's a little weird to put a prayer in the middle of the sermon. It's not the closing prayer, so if you were hoping we were done, we're not done. The fourth mark of genuine love is generosity. Look at verse 13. We are commanded, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now the attitude of the world is, get yours. Look out for number one, every man for himself. That's the pattern of of the uh, worldly way. Independent and isolated. But verse, uh, tw- verse 1 and 2 called us to be con- not conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're called to a totally new way of life. And this new way of life is a life of generosity. Caring for the needs of our fellow Christians and opening our homes to others. Now, as a church, we have a compassion fund through which we contribute to the needs of others, including our fellow believers. Lots of money given by this church travels through that fund every year to help those in need in the name of Jesus. And you can always contribute to the compassion fund. There's envelopes at all times in the in the chairs, and you can mark on their compassion fund. But this life of generosity that God calls us to goes far beyond church programs or a benevolence fund. We are called to a whole life of sharing together. What about you? When is the last time you opened your wallet to a fellow believer who was in need. Maybe it was just this morning. Maybe you've never done it. Is it a regular way of life for you to be generous towards your fellow believers who are in need? And when is the last time that you practiced hospitality, opening your home and your table to others? Oh, not me, I live... I live up on a mountain in the woods. Not me, my house is messy. Has it been a while since you practiced the Christian command of hospitality? Is it something you used to do? Is it something you are afraid to do? Do you feel your house is too small, too messy, too plain? Is your menu too meager? Now, I love Chip and Joanna Gaines' design aesthetic as much as the next guy. But you don't have to be Chip and Joanna Gaines to practice hospitality. That is an excuse. In his book, Outlive Your Life, uh, Max Lucado writes, Not everyone can serve in a foreign land, lead a relief effort, or volunteer at the downtown soup kitchen. But who can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door, 
a table, chairs, bread and meat for sandwiches. Congratulations, you have just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries, hospitality. Something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. When you open your door to someone, you are sending this message. You matter to me and to God. You may think you are saying, come over for a meal. What your guest hears is, someone thinks I'm worth the effort. This kind of generous living is not an optional extracurricular maybe if we feel like it. It is something that every single believer is called to in verse 13. To practice hospitality and to, uh, to share with one another generously. When we have tasted the generosity of God who gave his own son for our salvation, how can we not be generous people? So let us open our homes. Who cares if New England culture is isolated and independent? God is calling us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. No, there's nothing wrong with New England culture. I love New England culture. You know I'm not from here, right? But I love it. My wife is New England culture. But, God, but if our culture is preventing us from doing what God calls us to do, then we, we need to be transformed. To have open homes, open lives, generous lives. God wants every believer to be practicing hospitality as a way of life. And let us open our wallets as well. God wants every believer to share generously with those who are in need within the family of God. The fifth mark of genuine love that Paul gives us is humility. Our sinful default is to love sin and self above all else. But when God becomes the center, our self becomes less important. And this is humility, to think soberly and accurately about ourselves. Not that our self becomes unimportant, but humility is to let our self be only as important as it is. We are able to see God and others as more important than ourselves. And Paul gives us a picture of this humility in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I don't know about you, but our, my natural tendency when I am mistreated by others is to hate them. To curse them. We want to protect self. But Christ-like humility means that we bless those who persecute us instead. And there's no, there's no logic in this. It goes against our grain. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't lead to self-preservation. 
But it's the very thing we find Jesus doing. When Jesus was persecuted and even crucified with his last breaths, he blessed them in return, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. What an example of extraordinary humility to recognize the value of another person even while they are mistreating you. How do we find this kind of inhuman humility? The only place to find it is to soak in the sea of God's mercy towards us in Christ. Humility is also expressed in the identification with the experiences of others. One of the, one of the identifying marks I've, been, I've heard of a sociopath is that they are unable to empathize with others. But God calls us to identify with the experiences of others. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Proud and selfish people don't identify with the joys and the pains of others. Well, sorry about that, but I got to do me. Well, that's great for you. Who cares? Proud and selfish people think only of themselves. They live completely for their own joys and sorrows. But as we grow in humility, shedding our selfish orientation and our pride, the blinders come off. And suddenly, we can see what other people are going through. And God calls us in verse 15 to enter in with them in the ups and in the downs because it isn't all about me and it isn't all about you. Verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There's a little sandwich there. Do not be haughty, never be wise in your own sight. And in the middle, associate with the lowly. Do you look down on other human beings? People of a different skin color, people with less education than you, people with less money, people of other cultures, people with hygiene deficiencies, people who are not cool, associate pastors. Sorry. Just a joke. In God's eyes, there is no social stratification. We are called to associate with the lowly because in God's eyes, every human being is of equal worth and value. You know, there are people who come in among us here, maybe we're not crazy about them, maybe they don't do anything for us personally, but there is no other place on earth where they will be loved except for here. And so God calls us to lay aside our preferences and our desires and to associate with the lowly. Every dollar bill is worth a dollar 
whether it's wrinkled or crisp, whether it's old or whether it's new, because it bears the same mark, one dollar. Likewise, every human being bears the same mark, a far greater mark than one dollar, the image of the living God. And God calls us not to view ourselves as above anyone else. We are called to associate with the lowly. And when people come in among us, hopefully they'll say, wow, there's a lot of strange people here. Look how they love one another. Look how the people of Valley Bible Church love the strange people among them. Look how they associate with the lowly. If we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that will be a defining mark of our community. All right. Finally, the l- lastly, genuine love for God is reflected in what I am calling Christian retaliation. Now, we might think a, a better title would be Christian non retaliation, but that is not what we see in the text. In the text, we are called to give it to Him, to retaliate. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When someone does evil to us, we're not to do what comes naturally, which is to do evil back to them. Instead, we are supposed to do what is honorable in the sight of all, which is to do good to them in return. Well, you'll be... Please to know I'm skipping some stuff. And as we strive to do good to our enemies, we are actually giving them a portrait of Jesus. Verse 8 continues with this command. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, this verse calls us to live peaceably with all people. That is the goal, to live peaceably, to live at peace with everyone. This means that we need to pursue reconciliation with others. If we have wronged them, we need to seek forgiveness. But it gives us two important qualifications. If possible, and as far as it depends on you. These are realistic caveats, aren't they? They acknowledge that it is not always possible to live peaceably with some people. We can't control the actions of others. We can't make other people live at peace with us. But we can do our part, and that is what we are called to do. We can, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. But some of you have been deeply, deeply wronged by others at some point in your life. Well, how can we just let it go, you think? How can we forgive? How can we not retaliate? Well, verse 9 tells us how we can resist personal vengeance with Christian 
retaliation. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You see, we're called to leave the matter of vengeance to the wrath of God. God is the righteous judge. We need to let him do his job. God promises that he will punish. He will make it right. There is no wrong that God will not make right. God promises, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So instead of taking personal vengeance, we leave it to the wrath of God. God is the judge. He will sort it out. And instead, we're called to burn our enemies with blessings. Reading again from verse 20. Such a strange, strange command. To the contrary, it says, um, Never avenge yourselves. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Paul is drawing from Proverbs 25-21, where we read almost the same thing. Imagine the power of these instructions to feed your enemy when he is hungry, to give your enemy a drink when he is thirsty. Why would we do that? Verse 20 tells us the intended result. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, imagine a hot fire and a pile of red, hot, glowing embers in the midst of the fire. Imagine scooping those burning coals and piling them onto someone's head. That is the bizarre image here. That is what we are doing to our enemies when we bless them. But what does that mean? Some people have proposed that this means that we are blessing our enemies out of hatred for them. That doesn't work. That doesn't fit. Or blessing our enemies so that they will be ashamed, so that they will turn red in the face. But that that doesn't seem to be a, a suitable example of the imagery of burning coals, which always points towards God's judgment. I think what it means is that our retaliation is to do good instead. That is our burning coals of judgment. It's an advanced deposit, we might say, a sign of God's judgment to come, if our enemies will not repent of their wrongdoing. So we are blessing them, and that is our retaliation, leaving it to the wrath of God. When asked what he thought of Christianity, Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. 
I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, in some senses, who, who cares what Gandhi has to say? He's just a guy. And if you read his, uh, his biographies or his autobiography, you realize, yeah, he, he did some great things in the world, but he was just a guy. Um, not a perfect man by any stretch. But doesn't that hurt a little bit? Doesn't that sting? I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That we Christians would give Jesus a bad name by the way that we live, that, that stings. But if we truly live this way, if we truly live this transformed life of genuine love, who would have a, a complaint, a legitimate complaint against Christianity? I don't know if you've ever gone to a, a, a place where there are uh, portrait artists, live portrait artists. Um, I never pay for those. I mean, why would you ever pay for those? You can just stand there and watch them do it for somebody else. Cheapskate. And as you look over the shoulder of the portrait artist, at first it doesn't look like much. It looks like a few rough guidelines, some abstract markings. But as you continue to watch, the various defining features are filled in and sketched out, and eventually you begin to recognize the person in the portrait. May it be so with us. As we live out this life of genuine love, this list of extraordinary commands, these otherworldly instructions. May people see in our lives and in our life together the portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. May they be drawn to him by the lives that we live in obedience to Christ.